This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, my name is Seth Dare, and this is Speaker for the Living. I am here with JJ Genflone, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, led by Joseph Coney. In other words, we're talking about child soldiers. Finally, JJ. I know. I am. I feel like we've we've touched on child soldiers a lot, but we haven't really done, I think, a dedicated posting just on the reality of child soldiers. So I'm really excited for this one. We've had requests. So. Right. The term child soldiers is partially a misnomer, but it sounds a lot more sympathetic to call them child soldiers rather than like teenage soldiers or adolescent soldiers or young adult soldiers, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think the term soldier, I think, is is weird because I think soldier makes people think of sort of like a formalized military where people have like weapons and body armor and, and things like that, that there's a system of like a very clear hierarchy or maybe a set standard of, of behavior or sort of rules. And it's kind of like the whole child thing is that child soldiers, well, there have been some reports of them within like formalized militaries done by the state. A lot of times these are children pressed basically into militias or, or forced into working for militia groups. Right. And, th- and the situation differs like even between northern Uganda and Sierra Leone, where in uh, Sierra Leone you had massive failing state situation for a period of time where you may have to choose sides to survive. Mm-hmm. Whereas there was still a semblance of normalcy in northern Uganda. Like it wasn't a full war zone but it was a destabilized region. And so I'll get into the history before getting into research that's uh, highly based on what Christopher Blattman has done. And he's done a lot of uh, surveys on the ground. And so it this should be something where you're going to hear ex- extrapolated info. So one of the things that happens with stats is... There's a lot of inferential statistics, which means we take a small sample and we apply it to every the entire population. And the small sample that you that that we have are not always random, so they're not always fully representative, which means you can't always really extrapolate a small sample to the large one, but everybody does. Mm-hmm. But, I think, I don't know if yeah. this happened to you, Seth, but I get requests sometimes and they're like, can you tell me how many people have been sexually trafficked within like the state of Colorado in the year 2016? And I have to send back essentially like this five page email that's like, no, <laughs> I can't. Here's why, though. And if anyone tells you that they actually have a very set number and they can definitively plan it, they're probably they're wrong or they're trying to sell you something or, or they've gotten very, um, they're extrapolating a lot. So we'll go a little more into that when we uh, get to the actual data. But to start with, I am going to play a video for one minute that 
over 100 million people saw within six days in March 2012. For 26 years, Coney has been kidnapping children into his rebel group, the LRA. Turning the girls into sex slaves. And the boys into child soldiers. He makes them mutilate people's faces. And he forces them to kill their own parents. And this is not just a few children. It's been over 30,000 of them. And Jacob was one of those children. As some of you may have already guessed, that was Coney 2012, produced by Invisible Children. Can very well say that they put Coney on the map. I'm going to go through a timeline and a little bit of history, and I'll integrate where that falls on the timeline. But Joseph Coney is somebody who has committed war crimes and has done it with a degree of impunity. So to get to the specific history, what was happening in northern Uganda for over 20 years was a conflict between the uh, Lord's Resistance Army and the Ugandan Army, otherwise known as the UPDF. In 1986, uh, Yawri Museveni, the current president, and his National Resistance Army attained power. They overthrew the short-lived Acholi-led government. The Acholi is a lot of the northern region where the LRA ended up being. And he followed uh, Abote and Idi Amin, Milton Obote and Idi Amin, and Milton Obote also previously was there before Idi Amin. They were from the north. Museveni was from the south. Things were really bad. The economy was in shambles. And a few years later, Joseph Kony formed the Lord's Resistance Army. Notice the Resistance Army part is similar. So they were guerrilla forces in the north, and they resisted the takeover of Museveni's army. And Kony assembled the remnants of the groups that were remaining, but uh, the LRA wasn't popular and they lacked resources. So one of the means they used to grow was forced recruitment of youth. And they continued to fight the government. And it was also tense with the local population. So over the next few years, 89 to 91, you had the army trying to sustain itself and looting and continuing to abduct children. And then the Acholi populace decided to form a local militia in 91 to resist, and Kony did not re react well to that. And so then there were, he ordered widespread killing and mutilation of civilians. So from 1991 onwards, you had Kony fighting the government, Kony not treating the population well. And they may have started to wane, but then in 1994, Sudan, the country of Sudan, which was all one Sudan at that point, began supplying Kony with weapons and uh, also territory in Sudan to build bases, which helped the LRA. 
And after 1995, the attacks and abductions escalated dramatically. So a lot of instability in the region. There are people who questioned whether Museveni's government was using this for an opportunism. Like when there's a rebel army, you can justify doing things. I don't, you know, I'm not getting into motives, but just to say that there's debate about all of that. Um, also, Museveni himself has used underage soldiers as well. So it's not a uh, very, very clear-cut situation. So what, I guess, is the difference, if any, between child soldiers signing up to participate in war freely? So let's say I am a child in southern Sudan. There is fighting breaking out everywhere. I'm 14, 15, and I sign up to participate to protect my family versus I've been abducted and forced to fight. Is there any sort of legal difference between the two? I mean, morally, I know, and ethically, I kind of am following under the children can't consent to go to war. But is there any sort of different contention between kids who sign up to fight? Because we do have reports of children running away to join these armies or sort of just press ganging. With the LRA, it was, and we'll get into stats later, the vast majority were coerced, pressed, abducted in some fashion. Okay. Because I know that just that, that they've used what very little I know about the LRA is that they've they've said that these kids are freedom fighters that have signed up. So that's not a true narrative at all? No, not in the way that they did it. And this is, again, one of the differences between some other child soldier situations and the LRA, is the LRA was going into communities that had farms, that had stable, permanent housing, and were raiding and abducting. Now, one of the things that we're going to learn is that abduction was not a permanent situation, that it was, a lot of it was very transitory, and sometimes it was even for a specific purpose, such as uh, carrying things from A to B. The fact that you had so many people that were taken from families makes this a uh, easier to condemn situation and uh, a little mm -hmm. less gray than some other situations where Again, if there's a failed state situation and you have to choose how to survive, that's, in my mind, a little bit different. Yeah, no, I, I can see the difference. It's just I know that when I've looked at child soldiers in other places, too, it's been the narrative, well, in, in wartime, children grow up, they make decisions, and then whether morally you agree with that or not is different. But So it seems like under Coney, the... It was much more clear-cut of, well, we need more troops, so we're going to get more troops. What happened to the adult males in these situations that were of age to fight who weren't fighting? Were they just murdered, or were they also taken in as forced soldiers? It varied. Uh, usually, they weren't taking in older people, again, for reasons mm -hmm. we'll, we'll get into. But mostly it was you, you use tear, you get supplies, you abduct kids for your army. It, this is going to be brutal, isn't it? I mean, normally all trafficking is, but this is going to be this is going to be a rough one. 
later in the podcast, and I will mention it before I get to it, we will talk about the violence part, but mm-hmm. uh, for now, I'll read a little more historical context. So the government in Uganda in 2000 enacts the Amnesty Act, which was a way to say, if you leave the rebel army, then we will grant you amnesty and uh, we will help you reintegrate. The reintegration and the money given for reintegration was not evenly distributed and you had to go through a certain process and, and some people were even jealous of former child soldiers who, who got any perks for leaving the army, doing bad things and coming back. But that was one way that the government of Uganda used to take the wind out of the sails out of Kony's army. But that's one of the things. There were lots of youth who left Kony's army. So it wasn't a situation where he could keep everybody under control. So then in 2002-2003, the violence escalated. There were multiple reasons for that. One, the uh, Ugandan armed forces were permitted to enter Sudan and, and engage the LRA there and attack their bases. And around the same time, the Ugandan government forcibly displaced the rural population of Acholilan into IDP camps, which are internally displaced person camps. In other words, internal refugees. Mm -hmm. So it was for their safety. That's what they said. And there's people who dispute the motives of the Ugandan government. But in any case, the Acholi people, since this was... The North is not just the Acholi, but it's a large portion of it. And that, that is one of the uh, ethnic tribes, and there's language relating to the Acholi people. I have been to Uganda. I wanted to get up to uh, Gulu to see the North, and I wasn't able to when I was there. So the Acholi had to abandon their homes, crops, and animals. And one of the things to realize is that in a rural society, like animals and land are your sources of wealth. So when you're mm-hmm. taken out of your community that you've been in and you lose your land and your animals and you go into a camp, that's really rough on your economy, on your way of life. And consider this with refugees in general. Like you're you're going into a situation that's unfamiliar, you're you're losing your way of making a living. And so that was true here. Going into the camps did not make them totally safe from the LRA either. And it also disrupted the education of the youth, which is important. What do you mean that the camps aren't safe? I'm just, I'm just, were LRA members inside the camps or were aid workers working like in concert? Like what, what do you mean? Because I would think that a camp is a pretty strong protectorate at the very least, just because you have a whole bunch of people there sort of united. They were, but it did not stop abductions. It made it more difficult. But there there was also the fear and, and that you had everything that you do with your life was not contained within the camp. So you had to decide how far can you go from your camp. And so then the army would place restrictions on going more than a kilometer or two from the camps. The camps were not all like one location. Okay, so they're scattered sort of around. The, there were there were camps in, uh, let's see, 251 camps. Oh, gee, I thought that there would... 
Okay. I vastly misunderstood the amount of camps on the ground. 251 then. camps across 11 districts with 1.8 million people. That's a lot of people to try to protect. That's that's a lot. And I'm guessing that funding-wise, that's not a lot present there. There could have been more funding. There There is certainly a Western funding involved, but uh, their, their services were lacking and they still could have had more security, which is one of the complaints that you go and do this and we're still afraid. And that also, the trust with the government also was mm-hmm. iffy. So it was around that time, 2003, that Jason Russell, Bobby Bailey, and Lauren Poole, who would later form Invisible Children the next year, traveled to Africa to do a documentary about the war on Darfur and came across this narrative that they had never heard of. And wasn't until eight years later in 2012, this became a big story. But at the time that they were concerned about it, there, there was cause for concern. And I learned about the plight of uh, the Northern Ugandan youth from Invisible Children. So there are cr- critiques you can have of them, but uh, they, they've been doing, they, they did what they did for a while. I don't know. When did you first hear about Invisible Children, JJ? I actually heard about them via the Coney situation. Okay. So I'd heard of organizations sort of similar to them, but not not their name, not them at all. And I think when Coney 2012 hit, I was sort of in that initial wave of what what is happening here? What is this about? Who is this involving? What's the story? And so I, I followed Invisible Children from there. How about you? Well, I mean, I guess you've, you've mentioned you were kind of aware of them, I think, far before the... Yeah, I learned about them in 2006, 2008, but that's part of being with a nonprofit coffee house that had lots of <laughs> teenagers and millennials and or I should say teenagers. I would just and... like to point out that you just you just NGO'd hipstered me. <laughs> you knew about them before they were cool, Seth. I was around cool people. <laughs> despite me not being a millennial. But uh I try that's how I stay cool. But uh coolness is overrated. So now and to continue the narrative is a little bit more. 2014, Coney's Rebels started to weaken. Abductions dropped dramatically, but uh, there were still camps, still IDP camps. In 2006, the uh, government of Uganda and the LRA signed a cessation of hostilities agreement. It wasn't perfect, but it did allow some of the people of the north to go back to their lands. So, so that started that process. In 2008, the LRA mostly moved to uh, Northeast Congo and the Central African Republic. And then in 2010, by 2010, 83% of the 1.8 million people displaced returned to their villages. What they had left, what infrastructure was left when they returned, not as much as when they left. It's also when I visited Southern Uganda, 2010. And in 2012, the uh, government of Uganda had given amnesty to 12,971 LRA soldiers and ended the program. And did those LRA soldiers, did that just count as adult soldiers or did that count as children who had been brought in? My understanding is that we're talking about youth, whether all of them were youth when they returned, that I'm not sure, but they may not have been youth when they returned. And as long as we're on that topic, we'll discuss it. 
there there is this challenge with the child soldier narrative that you could start when you're 15 but then if you're in this army for four years then you're no longer a child and so then do you get treated as an adult do you are you still seen as redeemable will you be given the same amount of resources and there's plenty of questions on that that no we're not going to have as much sympathy for you if you become an adult I mean, but we've seen that in other forms of trafficking, too, mm-hmm. where we've had people who, who were taken as young children trafficked and then maybe continue to work within the organization and then they're arrested as adults. And the conversation then is, does it still count if from their earliest beginning mm-hmm. they were, you know, they, they, this was their normative sort of culture that they're, they're raised in? Yeah, and psychologically speaking, people that are younger are a little, there's more plasticity, they're still brain developing and everything, but that still happens. Like, I believe people are often developing at least till 25, and then brains remain a little bit elastic forever. And so how we approach people and who we see as redeemable, I I have problems with that entire narrative and how we handle that. Like, oh, you're 17, you're a child, and therefore you're redeemable, but then you're 19 or 20, and you're an adult, and you're not. (laughs) That just makes me mad. But that's the issue we deal with in trafficking in general, right? Well, I think that's part of the the conversation, too, that we've had when we talk about sort of psychological coercion and people's misunderstanding of what that is. That, yeah, if if you're getting people at a very, very important part of their life in kind of, you know, doing this incredible trauma to them, what what is their adulthood going to be like? Or their transition away from it? If, if you know, just, and again, this idea that somehow fundamentally at 19, you're so very different than you are from when you're 18 or 17. So with that entire timeline that I just gave, Coney 2012 was released in 2012 after all of that stuff that I mentioned. Now, in in their defense, lots of people still didn't know about the narrative, and Coney was still a war criminal wanted by the International Criminal Court, who was still out somewhere with a rebel army. So there was still something to say, but uh, one of the things they found is interesting is due to the criticism, they produced a video shortly after that was much more nuanced about the history and mm-hmm. and hardly anyone watched it. <laughs> well, that's the way of the internet. It's like, here's your nuance. Oh, we, we don't want to watch it now. Well, we don't. Yeah. Well, I think part of it too is that I think, I think County 2012 got picked up because there were a couple different things happening in the U S at the time. And I think that it, like looking at the video, like it's it's beautiful, it's very well produced, it's very clear, it definitely tugs at the heartstrings. And so I think expecting people to kind of go back a few weeks later is sometimes hard. It's hard to capture that initial emotion again. Well, and one of the breakdowns, or not, that's the wrong word, one of the analysis I really liked, because I've read quite a bit since uh, working the internet and such, the one who really explained it well made the point that 
you are what the video was about. It was targeted toward college students. It's targeted toward high school students. And a lot of them being middle class, a lot of them being white, a lot of them being millennial. They were targeting fairly mainstream youth and young adults in the United States. And so by showing a baby, a child, showing youth on campuses, youth at high schools, and saying, what can you do about this situation? That was what the, the narrative was ultimately about. Here's this bad thing and here's what you can do which I found just to be an interesting study of uh, communication, which, which also, no, I think, yeah, which I is challenging. That, yeah, no, and I think especially, like, the youth angle was great in terms of, like, let's get people who are of the same age of the, as the people being taken mm-hmm. to acknowledge. It's the challenge of narrative, and we, we, we have to deal with that in trafficking because we, we would prefer facts facts are good. Real is good. But sometimes what attracts people is narratives that they can relate to and and how you bridge that the gap of the narrative. And I definitely have mixed feelings on on that where I understand on one point, but on the other I, I don't like it if we are skewing the narrative or skewing the facts. So that's my comments on Coney 2012. Yeah, no, and I think we've talked about this too because how how do we rationalize, you know, we work in an industry, our, our ability to pay our own bills comes from researching and working with human trafficking. So how do we work to end the scourge while also making a living, while also when we're talking about victims, not re-victimizing victims or not using victims in, a, in an inappropriate way? How do we make sure that victims' voices are heard and that the research is processed while simultaneously acknowledging that some victims may may nevertheless be exploited in this thing to like, we've got to have victim narratives in order to make money to then offer services to people. Mm -hmm. It's a very complicated system. Right. It's one reason I like, I forget his name. Uh, He he, uh, was on a podcast on This American Life called The Business of Doing Good. And he said, I'm a pragmatic idealist. I can deal with that. So Christopher Blattman, he is a researcher and an academic, and he was part of conducting a uh, large-scale representative survey of over a thousand or nearly a thousand household and youth in the northern war zone, when it was a war zone, which included 500 former abductees. So this is some of the better data that I've seen on on the North and the LRA. So uh, I'm going to mention stats and uh, I'll try to pause so I can get uh, reactions and comments and questions. So recruitment happened a lot of places in the North and uh, was involuntary and mostly indiscriminate. In other words, it wasn't extremely targeted and very few of the early LRA recruits were volunteers, and many of them ended up becoming senior commanders. And most of the senior commanders did not return. But then from there, it was a lot of abducted children. It's been said that it's as many as 80% of the LRA is made up of abductees. 
it's hard to verify that claim, but uh, the survey data that Blattman and others have looked at said that that's probably not a major overstatement. The estimates, the estimates range between 20,000 and 66,000 abductees. I believe Invisible Children quoted 30,000. Yeah. Uh, A widely quoted stat is the UNICEF number of 20 to 25,000 of children who passed through reception centers, which was one of the means of officially decommissioning and reintegrating. So they had 20 to 25,000. So the only thing you can debate with that number is whether they were all child soldiers or not. Or if, let me rephrase, were they all child soldiers from start or were they child soldiers who had aged out or just child soldiers? Uh, the number here is children so or, or youth. So people that they met their criteria who they believe to be child soldiers who, to have been abducted and returned were 20 to 25,000. I haven't looked at all the specifics of uh, how they define the criteria. Mm-hmm. However, those are the ones who officially returned. And it's been said it could be two to three times more that didn't go through official reception centers. Oh, okay, but did return. I thought you meant that the rest had died. And I that was... But so you have a, you have a large portion, there, there perhaps. Are, there, there are certainly a number who died. Okay, so there's still high. So there's you've got a mix of the high mortality rate, and then some people going through official channels, and then some people just kind of informally returning to their community mm-hmm. without getting late. Okay, right. And part of that, is, as I'll mention, is the length varied. So maybe I'll just finish uh, these stats here. So of the males that were abducted before age thirty, uh, over two thirds were under eighteen. Of course, that means not all of them were under eighteen. In fact, quite a few weren't, but uh, three quarters were under 21. And again, this is based on the 500 abductees in in the sample, but this is actual real data. So three quarters of them were under 21. So so some young adults were, were taken in answer to earlier question. Links of abductions ranged from a day to 10 years with half gone for at least four months. Two-thirds remained more than two weeks, which means one-third were there less than two weeks. One-fifth remained a year or more, and only 5% remained more than three years. The average abduction lasted nine months. The LRA primarily abducted males in the sample uh, between the ages of 12 to 16, and uh, young adolescents were disproportionately targeted with youth aged 12 to 14, five times more likely to be abducted than a youth of 9 or 25. So it's primarily males 12 to 16, and then 12 to 14 being the the most targeted by far. Can I kind of ask three rapid-fire questions? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry if you've got kind of more of a plan for this. but nope. So my immediate questions upon hearing those statistics are these three things. One, how did you, prior to the ending of the conflict... How did people after, say, nine months to a year get out? I can't imagine they just were like, you're done. Thanks for your service. Goodbye. So that's one. My second one being if they're pointing out that they primarily took males, that means they did occasionally take females. So why? What role were the females soldiers, um, child soldiers 
taken to do. And then that third one is that in addition to sort of the labor exploitation here and that you have forced camp duties, forced violence from these children, was there actually, was there sexual exploitation as well from sort of adult military members? Mm-hmm. LRA, like any type of trafficking situation who in some sense coerces people to do their bidding. And, and as you mentioned, this is a form of labor trafficking. We don't always think of military as labor, but it essentially is. It's just not uh, the standard labor that most of us do. So they, uh, they moved them as far as possible from home, so to an unfamiliar area. So again, something familiar with trafficking. And I'll mention the types of violence and disorientation a bit later. But they also use misinformation. They said that uh, Coney was mystic, that uh, he, he was the spiritual guy, and they had this cosmology. They, they are sometimes called a Christian army and that they follow the Ten Commandments, although when I've looked deeper, I, I don't really see much weight to that other than the surface. But nevertheless, there, there was this uh, hybrid religion between local religion and Christianity that created a cultic situation. And so yeah, some of them were afraid because of the spiritual reasons. It all just seems kind of like that's, that's justification for sort of the mythos around the group. Mm-hmm. And they were told, they were given threats, like we discussed with psychological coercion, that uh, if they escaped, that the rebels would return and kill them or their families. And in some situations, youth, youth were forced to kill someone in their community before they left, which would make it harder to return. And they would say that they're, you know, you've done this and you won't be accepted. So a lot of standard ways of controlling people that are seen in trafficking. Yeah, it's strange how I, I think that there's sort of this thing that happens within human trafficking where there's a separation. So there's labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and then sometimes child soldiers get tacked on as a separate thing. But really we're seeing, I think that, or at least the way that you're articulating it, it seems to me that it's not altogether at all different. It's just that there's a method of violence being used mm-hmm. in that they're using slaves to commit this labor. That's that's violent. Mm-hmm. And in that, there's there's varying degrees of attachment to people who decide to believe in Coney, people who are given, as shown in movies like Beasts of No Nation, which is not factual but is instructive. That's a movie about child soldiers on Netflix, where if you have some leader like Coney who's saying, hey, you're, you're a great soldier and you are part of something, and hey, we're going to do something great, and mm-hmm. we're going to fight for freedom, that even though you're taken in, in in a situation where you didn't have choice, where you're like, well, hey, I, I, I like this part. I'm being encouraged, and I get to be part of an army, and at some point I get a gun and have this sort of brotherhood. But there's also threats and other things too. So there, there's making the best of a bad situation, which, again, is part of other trafficking situations. Certainly, uh, sexual slavery is part of it, since, yes, there, there, there were women or women, girls that were taken, 
and they would do domestic duties. They would do be quote girlfriends, which mm-hmm. which you would say is typically going to be some sort of sexual slavery. So that was their role. I, I do recall reading about pregnancies, and I forget if the LRA had uh, military like. Uh, girls or women with guns, but I know that that does. I have seen that some in child soldier literature. But uh, when lo- looking at the stats, I, the thing when I first saw this data that really surprised me was realizing how short term this was for many youth. You know, like that a third were there less than two weeks. Because that's something that's really not talked a lot about about in the narrative. And you hear there's children leaving. And it's like, well, how are they leaving? And how does that work? Well, it's because a lot of it was very transitory. And obviously, despite the threats that they weren't able to have full control over all of the youth as they're moving, and there were a number who escaped. And when you have quite a few who were there very short amounts of times... It's not surprising that they're not going to go through, if they've been gone two days, that they're going to go through UNICEF. They'll probably mm-hmm. just go right back to their families. No, and I can and I can see that. I could also see, is there, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, but even even despite the long population, like the, the long amount of people within, the large amount of people rather in the population that this affected to, uh, what... Is is there still social stigma attached with having been a child soldier, or or having been a legitimate, shall we say, member of the LRA? There's some stigma, although it depends on the youth, and uh, I'll get to that a little later. The question, a related question, though, is why children? So there's at least three main reasons why. They would choose children or people that tend to be under the age of, of uh, 18. First, there were a lot of adolescents. There were more adolescents than young adults. So there was quite a mm-hmm. what we'd call a youth bulge where you, where you have this pyramid of there's not, you know, there's a substantial amount of youth that are, are uh, creating an imbalance in the society in terms of uh, how a society would ideally allocate resources and jobs and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was easier to indoctrinate and use young adolescents. Young adults tended to stay around four months, whereas uh, ad- young adolescents tended to stay more than a year on average. However, if you go really young, and this is, again, something with the child soldier narrative, depending what you consider a child... Those who were under 12 were more likely to be loyal and more likely to be disoriented, but they weren't as effective as fighters. So, again, the 12 to 16, 12 to 14 was what was most useful for them to balance out the, you know, we can indoctrinate you and we can control you, but you are also functionally useful as a soldier. And uh, one of the stats that uh, relates to one of your earlier questions, according to 
what uh, Blattman found. Four-fifths of abductees eventually escaped, usually during an unsupervised So it's not moment. even so much as a, that they just release you so much as... There were some who were released when they were used for a functional purpose, like carrying gear. But usually it was, you know, running away when they have a chance, which would be easier if you're not far away from home. So a few quotes. Uh, this one was from child soldiers. This one was abducted for two years. I became like a real soldier. I was spying for them. There you do things just for survival. I started staying like any of them, but I knew in the back of my mind I was just doing it for survival. But for a point I forgot the survival and became a part of them. I was abducting and stealing just like them. Another informant noted, In the bush, there is something that confused people. There is a certain type of holy oil that they, which they put on you. It confused you and you could never think of a home. So there you have one talking about survival and the other talking about disorientation. And I and I can imagine too it's sort of this like group group think, I think, what after a while set in, right? Mm -hmm. Where in order to survive everyone kind of whether you believe in it or not buys into this narrative because that's what's necessary. Right. And to uh, compare this to other types of trafficking again the amount of power that you can have when you're in a situation that you don't want to be in is one of those fascinating things that, and kind of human things where even somebody who is in a forced uh, commercial sex like prostitution brothel situation where you're based on narratives we've heard, there's still people there that are thinking about what little bit of power can I exert? What amount of control can I exert? And here, where you're essentially a soldier of some type, or, or you might, or you have a gun, you're part of an army, where it's a, it's a different type of, how do I, when I look at it, it's a different type of control than in some other situations. And, and, uh, and I would imagine, yeah. I mean, even, even though it's children, we have stories, narratives that come out of war about people who serve together who say that very, very quickly, because people are going through these traumatic experiences together, they become a secondary family. So you don't want to run or leave without your brothers in arms. You don't want to do anything that would harm sort of the people in your, in your unit, your buddies, right? So I can see how that, too, becomes a form of control because you don't want to do anything that will hurt the people around you who you've come to care for and or who the people you trust. Right, and one way to explain that, I imagine most of you can relate to that anyway, but even you think of any workplace where you've had a lot of people, where often you find your people. You find your colleague or two that you really get along with and you talk about, like like with schools, you talk about the administration and you talk about, in a corporation, you talk you might talk about the CEO or you might talk about certain execs and, and so on and so forth. And while it's a totally different situation in, in terms of scale, we're not talking about the, you know, violence and killing, that you have this separation between the leaders and your people and you might find some some 
fellow soldier who matters to you and who you, you, you help each other survive and maybe even care about because it's human. Yeah, no, it's like an essential part of, of human makeup too that we like care about the pack, right? Mm-hmm. So violence. This is the violence part. So as I already mentioned, uh, real and threatened violence and injury were a primary means of discouraging escape and motivating performance. And again, going back, according to Blotman's surveys, the vast majority were tied, beaten, and abused in some fashion. 61% reported being severely beaten, so almost two-thirds. 26% reported being attacked with a weapon. And youth who stayed after two or three months, they were given a gun for raiding and abducting. And I'll again go back to the primary age that they abducted was 12 to 16. 55% of abductees reported that abductees as a whole were often or sometimes forced to beat or kill new arrivals. So half, yeah, that was half. Gonna, sorry to interrupt, but that was going to be my my next question because I think that's that's sort of the the stories that I I heard that were kind of reported in the news post Coney twenty twelve of that it was almost sort of like an initiation thing, like a kill kill or be killed thing, and then that just then cemented your position within the group because well, how can you go home when you've done this shameful thing? Right, although. Yeah, so we do mention a few other things, but uh, so that that was the new recruits, and that was not ubiquitous if it's 50%, although it's still higher, much higher than is comfortable. So then uh, related stats, 24% reported being forced to kill, 49% of long-term abductees reported being forced to kill. So if you were there a long time, it's almost 50%. But as far as abductees in general, around 24%. And, uh, you know, Blattman specifically mentions that the, the sensational practice of being forced to kill a friend or family member was much more rare based on the statistics he found in surveys. 14% of abductees reported being forced to beat someone close to them, and 8% reported being forced to kill a family member or friend. And then it goes a little higher with long-term abductees. That just, even if it's not physically doing the violence, I think seeing that or, or knowing that that threat is there or hearing those stories is incredibly traumatic, especially to, to a young person. Yes, and even reading it, and I've read it before, but like reading it out loud where it sounds more real, like it's it's still horrible and tragic and hard to think about, even though it's not as common as you may get the impression from media reports. But if you've had 30,000 or so youth that were abducted, and it's possible that 14% uh, of those had to beat somebody close to them. That's... 
and as you mentioned, other yeah, people you, are other people are seeing. That. How do you come back from that? Like that's hard, and that's no, that's hard. Well, and and then my only my only other thing, um, sort of that maybe this is, and I admit that this is influenced by popular culture. So this is like what I've heard about on things like Law and Order. Um, what what about the claims that sometimes as an incitement to commit violence, um, young people were given uh, drugs or narcotics or, or things of that nature, just as an extra coercive technique? Did you did you find anything that said that that was true, or is that kind of hyperbolic? Or I can see that in regards to Blatman's research, that he did not mention that, and based on him quoting a CNN reporter who mentioned drugs that uh, Blackman was partially mentioning that he's challenging some assumptions based on the data that he found. So we didn't find data that supported drugs. Uh, I can guess that in a situation like that, what you have access to is going to, to vary as well. So that's uh, what I have to say about uh, drug addiction. But if any of you have uh, stats on that, please feel free to share. The, the last part is relating to what happens to youth afterwards. There were a few surprising findings from Blackman surveys. For one, there was little aggression shown among former abductees, whether children or adults. That is not necessarily what I expected. Now, one of the things we're not getting into here is what happened to all the youth in the IDP camps who were in unstable environments and living in fear. People in IDP camps were not spared some psychological distress either. But the people that had severe psychological distress were, were in the minority. But uh, mm-hmm. the people that experienced the most severe violence or, or those who returned to the least supportive family environments had more issues, which is to say lots of family environments were welcoming and supportive, which is great. Yeah, I did I did find a UN report where they were talking about the LRA being involved in IDP camps or in areas around them doing sort of gender-based violence, you know, so using rape almost as a weapon of war. And I and I knew that there were issues of sort of human rights abuses people were reporting in terms of not enough access to clean water or or things of that nature. And I just it's right. especially when you consider all these kids that missed schooling for so much, formal schooling, or were separated from their parents as well. Going back to a place where it, where infrastructure has been destroyed and the economy largely has been hurt, this is it's going to be very. It just seems like child soldiers kind of create a wound on a community that's very, very hard to heal. What do you, have we have we had any sort of historical moments of like child soldiers like reintegrating, or when you have something like the LRA come in and remove mass amounts of young people from an area during a period of instability where the economy is broken down, infrastructure is crumbling. You already have sort of the separation of families just because of disaster. When the event ends and child soldiers return, are they able to kind of assimilate back in? 
or kind of be, you know, sort of quote unquote rehabilitated back in? Or are there, is there long term, long term sort of emotional, physical or psychological effects of being a child soldier? Based on what they can measure, the psychological effects don't appear to be major. They, they appear to be minor, especially since a lot of them were not there a long time. And uh, the two, two of the things that help is like only like 1% report their family wasn't happy or unwelcome when they returned. So 94% of youth feel that they're accepted by the families. And while some of them did have to deal with some insults and, and feeling afraid, 94% reported after they were there that they felt very, very or somewhat accepted by the community at the time. So those type of things help. The things that are challenging are one of the one things you, one of the things you mentioned, education. The average loss of schooling is roughly nine months, which equates with the average length of, of abduction. And that loss really puts them behind. The, the other part is your community has gone through changes and has gone through instability. And northern Uganda lost infrastructure that youth in IDP, IDP camps also had their schooling disrupted, also had... Uh, fell behind to varying degrees, but that, that depended. It depended on whether you had good teachers, whether you had good enough facilities, and mm -hmm. not necessarily. And then, so when you have your community and your way of life disrupted, when you have infrastructure disrupted, when you have people who are teachers that you might have lost or you might have left, when you now, even now, don't have enough teachers, good teachers, you don't have enough people being paid, you don't have enough infrastructure. The North now is still behind the rest of the country on a lot of factors, including education. It would be easier if you're returning to a, a stable environment that hadn't been disrupted and you could just fully reintegrate, but you're reintegrating into communities that have also been disrupted where some of those youth are behind on schooling. So that's, so there's a knowledge capital issue all across the board in Acholi land in parts of the north. And that that inability to return to full full normalcy and to have to get caught up has been one of the challenges of the north. And and you know I've met people in southern Uganda and some, you know, from very various parts of Uganda and, you know, Ugandans, I like, there's lots I'm impressed by with, with the resilience I've seen and, and what people, like some of the youth I've met, like what they've experienced that I can't fathom and here, here they're going on and living their life and building relationships and everything that I don't want to portray anyone in Uganda or Northern Ugandans as uh, just victims there. But losing education takes a toll and having to rebuild the North takes a toll. And, and I can talk about like just in the U S like where we have 
Houston, where you have a hurricane that has destroyed infrastructure and has disrupted lives, and that's going to be for a period of time, and there's going to be rebuilding, and that's disruptive. But it's not what you immediately think, is it? The losing education being one of the, the worst parts of it. Can you can you maybe rephrase the question a little bit? I'm trying to think of a way to, to say this without it being terrible. <laughs> so to conclude that section, from my part, I didn't go into this thinking that losing education would be the thing that puts somebody behind and makes it harder to reintegrate into society. That And maybe some of you listening wondered about that too. That we think about, oh, it must be so horrible and this horrible thing to be a child soldier, which I'd say it is, but that's only one part of what they have to deal with that even when they leave everything doesn't go back to normal and that return to normalcy and the ability to return to some semblance of normalcy and be able to get a job and you need education to get a job like that it it's all part of an ecosystem and that if we're going to help child soldiers, you don't just get people out of a situation. You also have to think about how do they get educated? Can they get into a vocation? Is there mm -hmm. an economy to have a vocation in? And I would say that's not what I immediately thought of when I learned about child soldiers. Uh, what about you, JJ? I, I just, it seems like it, it, child soldiering produces a thing where one, I think this is going to sound cliche, but kids are forced to grow up way beyond what they're capable of way too quickly doing things that normally breaks adults and then are kind of expected to go back to being children, which is sort of developmentally a thing that they can't do. And so... For me, it does immense damage, I think, if we're going to talk about, like, the nation or the state as a whole, because then you have this whole population of people who, one, miss that on a time when it's really important to feel sort of safe and secure and, like, you can explore, but also you have a nation of people who have had to deal with sort of excessive trauma in already stressful situations. And so I think, I mean, I know we don't assign a hierarchy to human trafficking, but I can see why people react so viscerally to this idea of child soldiers, because it doesn't seem like there's any sort of gray that you can apply to this at all. Sort of some gray area, you know what I mean? It's just that it's so completely and fundamentally wrong to send children into a battlefield. Yeah, although in the same token, like one of the things... I I learned being abroad is children are children and Ugandan children there were moments where this is a child same as every other child but there are cultural differences too and children are not coddled as much in Uganda as they are in the United States and maybe you know that's using a certain word but it's a different experience in parts of Uganda you, you can't 
it's harder to shield children from certain things there than than it is in the United States. So everyone, our conception of what a child should experience is not necessarily the same. Of course, you could even argue that in parts of the United States, that not every child is as protected from the world in some places than others. It's just, it's it's hard. This is really hard. I don't know how, how you go back in time and fix something like this. I don't think so. Well, I did a few reports in college at DU on Uganda and on northern Uganda. And it's just, it's gone through multiple phases of reconstruction. And they still have knowledge capital needs. And there's still debate about how much does the South care about the North? And and then you have the different ethnic tribes. There's like over 25 languages in Uganda. When I'm talking about Uganda, and I sound like I'm pausing, it's because I feel like saying anything, like if I'm not verifying a stat or if I'm generalizing, that it's so easy to generalize. And I don't like doing it, okay. but then it's hard to avoid it. And so if any of you have a major critique, feel free to send it. But uh, I do care about that. And uh, I, I really like the people in Uganda that I met. And uh, But the North, it's it's been rough. And uh, if you care about like child soldiers as something that tugs your heart, then... You know, looking into continued recovery. Like, what what can you do to help people in the North recover? How how can you provide jobs? And that that's that's a critical issue in trafficking. Like, mm-hmm. you people yeah, what people after? need jobs, and like there are places in Cambodia where, for some people, having a job in a restaurant or sewing was a really great thing. And for other people who didn't think it was a great thing. And that when you have limited economic opportunities and further may have some degree of stigma because of being a child soldier, which thankfully the sample was pretty low on that with what we looked at. But when you have some sort of stigma or you've had education interrupted or you don't have certain job skills that's all part of the recovery from trafficking and it's something that needs a lot more attention than it gets and so ends our uh, case study on the Lord's Resistance Army bam there we are alright everyone we will talk to you next week all right, and just a quick note uh, to try and do positive things. Uh, remember, things like the LRA like made made additional money and funding for themselves through the selling of counterfeit goods, illicit drugs, and uh, ivory. So by avoiding illicit markets and making sure you're buying things with clear supply chains, that is one way where you can impact you know the ending of, of child soldiers being used. It can be hard to say that you know you can't. To say, like, we're going to stop interstate violence might not be possible.
but by not participating in these illicit markets, you can at least take away a revenue stream. So positive thing you could do. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.